Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is the Truth About Work podcast, episode 35. Thanks for listening to 35 episodes. We've got questions to answer about work and life in the workplace. We've got some unbrainwashing to do. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my story, how this human workplace thing and movement and energy came to be. And, uh, you know, that's what we do all the time. So first one is questions that we job seekers are afraid to ask on job interviews. And I want to talk about these questions because I want to get the frame, the model in your mind. Yeah, these are questions that I actually would not probably ask on a job interview. You're right there, Liz. Uh, And they're really reasonable questions. And so we have to ask, why would we be afraid to ask very reasonable questions like these on a job interview? We're going to get there in a second. Here are some of those questions. Job seekers would love to ask, but they don't dare to ask on a job interview. How long is this job going to last? There's a sensible question. How long is this job going to ask? Nobody's going to ask that question. Unless it's literally a contract assignment, we don't want to ask. Because the answer is, it's none of your business. As long as we want it to last. Sometimes if you ask that question, they might be startled and say, well, if you do a good job. If I do a good job, what? (laughs) That doesn't cement my job. That doesn't guarantee my job. Here in the United States, it's completely wide open how long a job might be. So even though you might change your life a lot, you might even move to a new city to take a job, there's no guarantee. This is why I want every working person in the United States to have an employment contract, which is something they have, every working person has in every single other industrialized country except the U.S., But here, few job seekers would dare to ask, how long is this job going to last? Another question is, how many people did you guys terminate last year and why? None of your business. Again, we don't talk about that. Do a good job and it probably won't happen to you. But why can't I have that information? It would help me evaluate your culture and how you treat employees. How many people quit this job voluntarily last year? also not something most of us would feel comfortable asking on a job interview. If there's a bonus plan, you might be dying to ask how many folks who work here got their full bonus last year. Also a tough question to ask. Why are these questions hard to ask in a job interview? Why would people be afraid to ask them? They sound like reasonable questions because the job interview is before you have the job. If you ask questions that the employer perceives as difficult or challenging or, you know, above your station, they'll hire someone else. Fear is baked into the employment relationship here in the United States uniquely. Uniquely. There could be fear in the employment relationship anywhere, but it's really baked in here in the United States by virtue of a legal doctrine called employment at will that hold sway in all 50 states, a little less so in the state of Montana, but, you know, basically in the state of Montana that you have, you're supposed to have a reason to fire somebody in the other 49 states. No, you don't need a reason. Now the exception is union members, people who are part of collective bargaining units and they have union uh, contracts in place. They cannot be let go for any reason or no reason. There's a process associated with terminating or even disciplining a union member. And there are other employees who have individual 
employment contracts. But for the vast majority of working people, no, your, your job is at the pleasure of your employer. Even if you have an unstable boss who shouldn't be managing people, it's too bad, right? It's just too bad. And this is what happens to working folks. And I was appalled to learn this as a young HR person. And that's one of the reasons that I do this stuff now and talk about it. So people know this isn't normal, you guys, to go to work and not have any idea how long you're going to be there. And to be, to be, to, to have the vulnerability that you could be fired at any moment, just for no reason, literally, you're a Red Sox fan and your new boss is a Yankees fan or whatever. It makes no sense. It's not normal. It's not okay. And it's one of the reasons we have so much, so much uh, cynicism about work in the United States and so many unhappy people. I just did a poll on Twitter just an hour ago saying, how likely are you to change jobs in 2021 or between now and then to start a job search? And it was 78% of the people who responded said it was either absolutely certain or somewhat likely they would start job hunting. And only 22% of people said, now nah, I think I'm going to stick. And of those, 9% work for themselves. So they're not, of course, they're not going to job hunt, right? If things are going well, they're working for themselves. So what does that leave? 13, 14% who work for other people, and they're pretty sure they're going to stick at their job through 2021. Every survey that's done, every poll shows high numbers, 70, 80% of people who want to change jobs. So that, that's not ideal. That's not good. We need, to, we need to look at that. But individually for you, you need to know that um, it isn't you. It isn't actually you. There's nothing wrong with you. But the system of work, employment in the United States is broken. So those are the questions people are afraid to ask on a job interview. Just something to talk about and start to get the mental wheels turning. Like, yeah, work really is broken. It isn't me. When I'm pushing a, a, a rock uphill every day, on the job or trying to get a job, it's it's not me. There's nothing wrong with me, but I work in a broken system. And this is 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 very closely related to our um, principal fixation at you at uh, Human Workplace, which is fear and trust at work. We have so much fear baked into the system of work because, in part, of employment at will, and because of the system of work, the design for work that we inherited from you know, the Industrial Revolution and the robber barons of the 1800s. You know, this employment at will doctrine that I spoke about a minute ago, it came about in the 1870s when the rich robber barons said to their friends in Congress, kind of like now, hey, you know, it's too easy for employees to sue us all the time. It's a big pain in the neck. We need to have no contracts, just employment at will. The reasoning was you can leave at any time so we can fire you at any time. Yeah, it never happened in any other industrialized country. Isn't that interesting? Only here it seemed logical to them at the time, the robber barons and their friends in Congress. Yeah, yeah, we should let people get fired at any time. And by the way, if you get fired for no reason, if you get laid off for no reason in the United States, you may, you may be eligible for unemployment compensation. But if you are, it's a small percentage of your paycheck. It's not like you still get your paycheck. It's a small percentage and you have to jump over... <laughs> burning piles of I don't know what to get that money. Many, many people are sitting here laid off during this COVID-19 pandemic, still waiting for their first unemployment check. It's not like it's guaranteed, even though you paid into it with every single paycheck at every single job. There's all kinds of eligibility requirements. Don't get me started on that. But the fear is so baked into our system of work that people can actually start to 
their thinking is impaired by the fear around saying or doing something their their employer might not like. And you see this when you go into a workplace and people seem like zombies. They would never say a word against, you know, the company or a horrible policy or a horrible manager or the horrible energy. They would never say a word. And you're like, what are you afraid of? You're just talking to me. I'm not going to tell anybody. If you, if you tell me that you also think it's, there's a lot of abuse here in this workplace and they still won't say anything, they're, they're that afraid. They're that afraid. They don't trust anyone, right? Maybe they've been stabbed in the back before, but there's also something called the Stockholm syndrome happens to victims of kidnappings and that they get kidnapped and they start to sympathize with their attacker. It's a defense mechanism. You know, it would be dangerous to do otherwise. And the body just says, okay, you know, I'm kidnapped and I'm with you and you're my kidnapper, but my brain chemistry temporarily, hopefully is going to shift such that, you know, you're my protector and I'm going to do everything you say. And I'm going to actually, you know, trust you more than folks who could help me. And it happens at work, Stockholm syndrome. It happens to people at work so that you, they join with their manager in seeing you as a troublemaker. If you call out the bad things that are happening, they could be breaking the law and they will still back up the employer and say, you're a, yeah, you're the troublemaker. Cause it's too scary. It happens in, um, dysfunctional families. If you're the person who speaks up or stands out or is the rebel in a dysfunctional family, you'll be the bad guy and you'll be cast out. And and in the work situation, if you can, my advice of course is to get out of there, shake off the brainwashing, washing, get out of there, but do not look to your colleagues, your coworkers in an unhealthy workplace to join with you. They're probably not going to do it. And it's this, this, this insidious, uh, 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 brainwashing that happens to people in dysfunctional workplaces where they start to believe, yeah, no, my manager, my manager's great. You know, the company's great. You're the troublemaker because you're telling too much truth. It's really hard to fight against. Got to get out. Normally you got to get out. It's not your mission to stay there and try to make things better, especially when it's that far gone. Okay. So we have a question. Question is from Megan. Hi, Liz. On a job interview, what do you think about the question, do you have any concerns about my background that I can respond to? Mm, Megan, I've seen this question um, suggested in so many articles and podcasts and whatever, videos, books about job hunting. Do you have any concerns about my background that I can respond to? It's a horrible, god-awful question, Megan. Never ask that on a job interview. Do you have any concerns? First of all, they're not likely to tell you. These concerns are not well-reasoned. They're not logical. When somebody doesn't like you on a job interview, it's very unlikely to be a specific thing about your background, or they probably would have asked you already. But the, but the bigger issue with asking this question is the presumption that, you know, it's all about you and your background. It's not, right? It's not. It's not mostly about, have you done this? Have you done that? It's going to be energetic. And we have to tell the truth about that. They're going to hire the person they feel comfortable with. Are there biases? Oh my God. Yes, of course. Massive, massive biases. The little bit of training that some interviewers get about overcoming biases does not actually overcome biases. We have a lot, lot, lot of work to do, but it's tied into this fear thing I spoke about before, right? 
everything new and unusual, it seems foreign in any way, foreign to their experience, their worldview, is scary. So when, when they don't like you in an interview and they don't want to hire you, the, it stinks and it's pro, it could be illegal if it's bias on the basis of your gender or your race or your ethnicity or your country of origin, you know, all of these things, religion, um, differently abled people. There are, there is so much bias age, obviously, but you're very unlikely to get anybody over that by saying, do you have any concerns that I can address? Cause it's not something you can address, right? That is not something you can address. And in the more likely case where they don't have any concerns, why would we want to put that in their mind? Do you have any concerns about me? Remember, it's a two-way street. You're evaluating them as much as they're evaluating you. You're selling yourself to some degree on the interview as the solution to their problem, and hopefully they're selling you, right? They're selling you too. So the idea, do you have any concerns about me, is, is part of the bad frame, the bad model that I don't want you to walk into an interview with, whether it's live or a Zoom interview, Please, your majesty, I hope I'm good enough. Do you have any concerns about me? Ew, no. You're talking, I hope, at a higher level than evaluating you, right? Evaluating you as a person. As a... No, you're saying, so tell me what's going on in the department. What kinds of things are you guys struggling with? Well, you know, one of the big things right now is we're doing this big pricing change with our products and it's causing this issue and that issue. Oh, interesting. So what have you tried so far? to deal with that and how did it work? You want to get them out of the weeds and you specifically want to get them out of this idea that they're sitting in judgment on you. Are you good enough? Hey, are they good enough? Are they good enough for you? Your mindset has so much to do with your success in your career and in your life. Even in the presence of massive, unfair, potentially unlawful institutional barriers and, and racism and sexism and all of these things, ageism, ableism, even in the presence of those things, your approach to your own life and your own path has a lot to do with how you will be perceived by other people. It really does. Feeling in control, feeling in control of the things you control and you do control whether or not you want to work for this company. Even in your darkest, you know, financial times, there's another company that would hire you and abuse you as badly as these guys are proposing to, right? Control. When, when people get laid off from good paying jobs and they're shell-shocked and they're freaked out, and these are a lot of the folks that I have heard from and met over the years, I say, look, if you are freaked out about money and who wouldn't be, take the easiest job to get. Take that very basic job that you might have done in college or high school. Just take a job. And they take the job, doesn't even pay the rent, but it gives them something back besides a meager paycheck. It reminds them, oh yeah, I'm smart. I can learn stuff. I can do this stuff. A little bit of social interaction during the day. Okay. And they eventually get a better job and get back to, you know, where they were before or something brand new, whatever. But here's what they say about going back to that basic job is that it reminded them that, that that's a pretty easy job to replace. And so it gave them confidence being in a job that is easy to replace. Does that make sense? Being in a job where they felt more control because if they needed another job, paid the same amount, they could get one if they had to leave. A lot of people say there's less stress in those jobs than gutting it out, fighting it out for a corporate job. Although... 
nobody ever said, I mean, people do say entry-level jobs are easy, but they're super not easy. That's a myth, really insulting myth. And uh, minimum wage jobs are can be some of the hardest jobs there are. But people still get something out of going to a job that if things got sufficiently bad, they could replace the job pretty easily. And that gives them a feeling of control. Where people get in trouble emotionally, energetically in their careers often is that they get way out over their confidence level to the point where they feel so lucky to have a job. I'm so lucky to have this big job. I'm so lucky. How could I replace this job? And then they get laid off or they have to leave for some reason and they, they don't have the confidence they could get a similar job. So, so much of job hunting and, and going to work has nothing to do with the facts, your resume or the work to be done or the tasks or the accomplishments. It's, it's in us. It's emotional and it's vibrational and we never talk about that. We should. We should talk about the fear and trust at work every single day. If you ask me, that's why I do exactly that. Okay, hi Liz. This is no name. I have a no name on this. Hi Liz, the back to work date at my company is uncertain, but I have health conditions that make it literally impossible for me to go to the workplace. Should I start job hunting? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think everybody should be halfway job hunting all the time, right? But definitely, if you cannot go back to the workplace and you're sitting there waiting for there to be a date when you have to go back to the workplace, I mean, I've heard everything since the start of this COVID-19 crisis. People who are already back at work, compelled to be there. And by the way, you know, again, here in the United States, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has made literally no attempt to have enforceable standards for COVID safety at work. None. There are none. There are none. They could have the oldest heating and air conditioning and ventilation system in the world. It could not require masks at work. You could still be compelled to come to work or lose your job. And there was at least one governor, I forget what effed up governor said they were talking about making people ineligible for unemployment compensation if they left their job because it wasn't safe for them to go to work because of COVID, given that their company had not made the workplace safe. And no, you're not going to be able to get unemployment. So this is the grim reality of what we're dealing with right now in the United States. It's an anti-worker attitude in government, in government. Very, very, very bad. And um, I'm hopeful things change over the next couple of years. But in the meantime, I'm trying to get you to see we have to we have to advocate for ourselves and one another, and we have to make choices. We cannot depend on an employer just because they're a company and you're not a company to do the right thing or to take care of you. I'm not an anti-company. I am a co- I have a company. I have employees at Human Workplace, right? And I am an HR person for years and years, and and am proud of the companies that I work for because we did the right thing. We can't rely on that. We can't rely on companies doing the right thing. There's many reasons why that I will talk about at a later date, but we have to be our own advocates. You have to see yourself as an independent economic unit, as real as any company, as real as General Motors, as real as Microsoft, more real because you are a real person and they are just a piece of paper somewhere in a filing cabinet in Delaware or the Cayman Islands or something, right? So I don't want you to go to a job interview and grovel and say, do you have any concerns about me? Why would they have concerns about you? You just talked, you had a conversation between two people 
about this job, about you, your background, their background, what's going on in the company. Do you have any concerns? It's so weird. Can you imagine going on a date and saying, do you have any concerns about me? Ew, who would want to date you, right? You would not want to date someone who comes on a first date and says, do you have any concerns about me? Um, just that question that you just asked. That was really weird. That was a weird question. Do I have concerns? You know what I mean? All right, let's unbrainwash ourselves a little bit here. Unbrainwashing, knocking out, dripping out the toxic lemonade we've been taking in against our wills since we were little kids. The, the messages about work, about ourselves, about self-esteem, about what is valuable, what makes people valuable. A lot of toxic, toxic ideas. And the one I want to talk about today is very intense. It's work comes first and everything else comes after. This one hit me like a sledgehammer to the solar plexus. When I was doing a live thing, Huffington Post, I used to write for Huffington Post, and they had a thing called Huff Post Live. And I heard some of the most cosmic, mind-blowing things doing these Huff Post Live sessions. You're just there on Google Hangouts or whatever it was, and I'm there in my house, you know, behind a screen, and so are the other guests in the Huff Post Live session. And they ask you these questions, you talk about these topics, and people would say very intensely messed up things and this particular time it was about reachability or something how reachable should people be on the weekends or what are reasonable expectations of people when they're not at work something like that i vaguely i don't remember but this is like seven seven eight years ago and i'm on there and there's a couple guests maybe an hr person and an entrepreneur and a lawyer there was a young lawyer and the young lawyer even mentioned he had a baby or a couple babies and somebody said something about work and your obligation to work. And he said, well, look it, we all know, right? Work comes first and everything else comes second. And I was just like, it was like, what did you just say? No, work does not come first. Work does not come first. We come first. Your life comes first. Your work has to fit into your job. If we would say work comes first, we are talking about fear, right? That, that idea that work comes first comes strictly from fear because the only reason we would ever say work comes first is because we would be afraid that if work came anything other than first in our lives, in our priorities, something bad could happen. We could lose our job. Oh no. And I want to shake that up. You lose your job, you'll get another job. The people who get used to and get comfortable with staying in their power and potentially losing a job because they know they can get another job because they've done this work on themselves and they have a network and they know what pain they solve and they know how that pain shows up in organizations and what it costs them. They're employable. They're employable. That's job security now. But the idea that work comes first is so twisted and what? You're alive on the earth for maybe 75, 80 years, maybe if you're lucky. Work does not come first. Work does not come first. But what shocked me in this case is that this lawyer was so young and he said it so blithely, so instinctively, work comes first, of course, no, honey, work does not come first, work comes second, maybe third, you come first, your family, your people that you take care of, right, come maybe second, you decide on the numbers, but work probably comes third, right? Unless you signed up for a job that you know no matter what, sleet nor hail, nor, right? Then, then, and you're going to be there, work does not come first. And the brainwashing, 
that told us all these years work comes first? No. This is like people say never date someone at work in case it doesn't work out and it's awkward. Yeah, no. Date someone at work. If you want to date someone at work, it's a great place to date someone because you can see them in action with other people. It's a wonderful place to get to know someone without the pressure of the dating apps and all these other things. If you have to get a new job, one of you or both of you, you'll get a new job. You can get a new job. If, it's your, if, if that person is the love of your life, go ahead and date the person at work. If it seems like it's, hey, life is for living. And you know what? Work does not come first. And I was going to tell you a little segment in the story, me, human workplace, but we'll save it. Save it for the next episode. You guys are awesome. Take care. Talk to you soon.